Actually, Jessica, can you just pause it one second? I just need to do one. Welcome to a new podcast miniseries from the CRISPR Journal, sponsored by Taconic, Essentials of CRISPR-Based Animal Models in Drug Discovery. In today's episode, legal considerations when choosing a genetic modification technology to generate an animal model. Hello everyone, I'm Kevin Davis, the founding executive editor of the CRISPR Journal and the author of the new book, Editing Humanity, The CRISPR Revolution and the New Era of Genome Editing. We're partnering with Taconic to bring you a three-part podcast series that's exploring topics around animal models, genome editing, and licensing questions, hopefully imparting some valuable insights to help you successfully perform genome editing in various animal models. In this episode, we're going to discuss the legal considerations when choosing a genetic modification technology to generate an animal model. I'm delighted to be joined by two guests, both from Taconic. Firstly, Dr. Gretchen Rice, who's Vice President and General Counsel at Taconic. She earned a PhD in biochemistry from UC Berkeley and her JD from Boston College Law School. She's a registered patent attorney. Gretchen, great to see you. Hello. Hello, nice to be here. And we're also joined by Dr. Mark Johnson. Mark has a PhD in neuroscience from Brown University, did his undergraduate uh, at Cornell. Develop, is that right, Mark? Yes, that's correct. Okay, let me do that again. We're also joined by Dr. Mark Johnson, who earned a PhD in neuroscience from Brown University. He did his undergrad at Cornell. His graduate work was developing mouse models to study interspecies chemical communication and he also did a postdoc fellowship at Harvard Medical School designing transgenic mice that model genetic forms of autism spectrum disorders. Hello, Mark. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, so two great guests who are gonna dive in and help us better understand the, uh, the minefield and the uh, issues that you need to contemplate when, when dealing and thinking about the licensing issues, specifically around CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology. Um, so Mark, let me start with you. There are sort of, I think most people listening to this will be aware of two competing rival quote unquote inventions of the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology. Could you briefly describe how this situation came about and what is the current landscape around the original inventions? Yeah, sure. I think I can start with talking about conceptually how that happened and then pass it on to Gretchen to talk about the details. So methods of precisely added genomes, and in particular, the genome of a living cell, have been intense focus areas in research for many years. So it's not surprising that different research groups have been simultaneously engaged in research in CRISPR, and also not surprising that more than one talented scientist succeeded at about the same time to develop a method for applying the CRISPR system from bacteria and archaea to genome editing in other cell types and in other species. And, turn. Sorry, um, pardon me. The current landscape is that there are two principal parties, UC Berkeley and the Broad Institute. They are both credited with inventing the foundational methods of using CRISPR technology to directly and specifically edit a genome. 
Each party, Broad and UC Berkeley, has received multiple patents in countries around the world. And these patents are all, they're valid and they're existing. Um, Broad's patents, Broad's issued patents for genome editing and uses it, ah, sorry. Um, Broad's patents are for genome editing and uses in eukaryotic cells, including cells from animals, humans, and plants. UC Berkeley's patents, in contrast, are for methods of modifying a target DNA molecule without limitation to use in eukaryotic cells. Okay. Should I do that all over? I don't. I think it's fine. We can okay. we can we can, we can splice and dice um, Christmas style. That's fine. <laughs> Nerds. As I'm sure everyone knows, Gretchen, there's been a major litigation dispute uh, between these two uh, these two groups. Um, what's and it's not been resolved yet, uh, despite years of uh, pretty expensive legal bills. I'm sure. What's the current status of the of the dispute? So there are litigation battles between UC Berkeley and the Broad worldwide. Uh, in the U.S they are going through a second round of interference proceedings, which is currently in process and will not be resolved until sometime next year at the soonest. There are uh, challenges throughout Europe, um, which are called oppositions. And I actually have not been following in the other countries, but I suspect as well, there's gonna be a challenge in every single country that permits a challenge to the patents. Um, the most important factor for each researcher that wants to use this technology is that patents from both parties, UC Berkeley and Broad Institute, have been held to be valid. And so they are valid, they're separate from each other, and a license is needed from each party in order to practice CRISPR. Because as I mentioned earlier, um, the UC Berkeley patents are cell-free. They don't specify that, they, that the work has to be done in eukaryotic cells. Broad's patents, the uh, they are specific to CRISPR technology in eukaryotic cells. And Gretchen, just to, just, uh, to clarify, when you say uh, CRISPR technology, we're talking about CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing. We're not talking about other Cas enzymes or base Correct. editing. Those will be handled presumably by completely different sets of, of IP. That is correct. I do mean CRISPR-Cas9. All right. Um, right. And actually, another thing I should add on is with respect to academics and nonprofit um, entities, both UC Berkeley and the Broad Institute have agreed that those entities, nonprofits, can use CRISPR-Cas9 technology for their internal research that does not have commercial application, but for their internal research and teaching purposes at their own institution, whereas a commercial entity will need licenses. Right. And so I think for the rest of our discussion, really, and I believe most of your uh, clients are uh, for-profit commercial companies and organizations, correct? So these are considerations that they will really need to be uh, mindful of. Mark, why don't you hang up and that? Um, I wasn't paying attention, I'm sorry. Okay, sorry, let me go back. Um, we have both academic and for-profit customers, both of which are requesting us to create uh, GEMS design models, as we call them, custom models that are made using CRISPR-Cas9 technology. But with respect to, sorry, I don't know where to go with that. Okay, that we, you know what we, uh, I think I'll get to it in the next question, so. Okay, all right, we'll, 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 we'll delete that little exchange. I have one quick thing, just if we're already kind of yeah. pausing, just for a clarification. And Gretchen, tell me if I'm if I'm wrong, but even if nonprofits have the right to use CRISPR, if they have any future aspirations of commercializing the result of it, 
then that changes everything, right? Because I think that's part of some of the questions that we tend to get, right? I used it in this moment, not thinking 10 steps down the line, but oops, 10 steps later, I realize I don't have the right to commercialize this because of the way I originally made this animal, correct? We can go back and do this because yes, at UC Berkeley and Broad, they both permit the customers, the nonprofit entities to use it for non-commercial research and educational purposes. If the nonprofit was ever to want to sell the results or to use it for anything other than educational purposes, then they need a license just as any other entity does. Well, then let, let's, get that, let's get that point crisply uh, recorded. Yes, so Gretchen, why don't I just follow up with you and then we'll, um, uh, we'll go on to question number three. Um, Gretchen, uh, are we talking just about for-profit uh, commercial organizations and companies that need to be um, thinking about the IP considerations? What are, Academics, I believe, have free use of CRISPR, um, but will they also need to potentially think about the, uh, the IP issues? Yes, academic entities should be thinking about the IP issues as well. Since they are permitted to use it for educational purposes and for their internal non-commercial research, if they ever want to commercialize the product, they want to sell it to a for-profit, they want to engage in sponsored research, et cetera, they need to get their own license to do so. Also, at add-on, they can't provide this as a service to other academic entities. So an academic core that is going about the business of producing uh, custom models that are generated using CRISPR-Cas9 should also have its own license because that's not a necessarily an academic educational research purpose. Excellent. Okay, fantastic. Uh, Mark, let me come back to you. There are improvements and modifications to the CRISPR technology being published and patented all the time. How do investigators keep all of this straight. Is there a single resource that they or their legal team can go to to better understand the current landscape? So yeah, that's correct. There are improvements and modifications to the CRISPR technology being published and patented on a frequent and ongoing basis. Taconic actively monitors the science being developed around this technology and also the patents being granted around it to reaffirm that the CRISPR technology we're using is fully licensed where it's practiced. But as far as a one single research resource to find this information, I don't know of any single place. Do you know, Gretchen? No, there is at this time no single resource um, which is available that has gathered all the patents into one place. Um, there are numerous articles that have been published that will tell you the general landscape of the CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas9 patents uh, and the scope of the patents that are being granted, but you can't just go to one entity and get a license for everything. All right. You'll, you'll have to uh, prepare that, Gretchen, submitted to the CRISPR journal. That's <laughs> what I'll um, Okay, what are the, Mark, what are the two or three questions related to CRISPR licensing that, as an investigator, I should ask my collaborator or supplier as I consider introducing a CRISPR-derived model into my research program? Well, I think as a researcher, you always want to think about the science first, even before the licensing what's gonna be the best technology to use to make your, your research model. So the first question you wanna ask is what is the most effective method to generate a desired research model? In many cases, there are multiple methods that can be employed to generate a given genetic modification in the host genome. Oftentimes the main advantage of CRISPR over traditional approaches is a significant reduction in the time and effort it takes to generate the desired model. However, most models that could be generated by CRISPR could also be generated using the long established approach 
of using drug selection-based targeting in embryonic stem cells. There are instances, however, where CRISPR may allow for more precise or seamless gene editing, not leaving behind the drug selection cassettes or recombination sites of the target locus. Or it might be the only choice due to DNA sequence limitations. In addition, for specific genetic backgrounds of the laboratory mouse or for host species where there is a lack of embryonic stem cell targeting capabilities, CRISPR-Cas9 could be, or nuclease, other nuclease-based gene editing systems might be the only option to develop the model. Um, I could probably go right into the licensing question because that's the next clear question. From a licensing perspective, what is the ultimate goal for the use of the research model? Will the model be used for internal research only or for sales to a third party? CRISPR is a reasonable choice for building research models that will only be used internally or shared with collaborators. But if the intention is to ultimately sell the model commercially to third parties, then using a non-CRISPR-based method is probably more advantageous as licenses from the CRISPR technology patent holders would be required. Thank you. Um, Gretchen, this next question is for you, I think. What types of licensing fees must an end user consider when considering a CRISPR-generated model in their research platform. So for example, do I have to purchase my own license to use a CRISPR generated model? So there, it's a twofold question. Um, when you're considering using a CRISPR generate, CRISPR-Cas9 generated model in your research platform, um, as Mark mentioned, you have to decide, you have to realize what is your ultimate end goal of it. If you're planning to use it internally, then you can have the model generated by a third party such as Taconic. We have rights from both the Broad Institute and UC Berkeley as well as rights from a few other parties for select modifications and improvements to the basic CRISPR-Cas9 technology. So when we generate a mouse or rat model on behalf of the customer, the customer is not required to pay a separate license fee to breed or use the model for their own research purposes. And they're also permitted to use the, the custom model that we make for them with contract research organizations. So um, that's one thing to think of. If, if you buy it from a third party source, um, so if you're considering using a CRISPR-Cas9 generated model in your research platform, you have first considered what you're planning to use the model for. If you're using it for internal research, then you can have it produced by a party such as Taconic. Um, when you ask the question of do you have to purchase your own license to use a CRISPR generated model, then um, again, referring back to Taconic, if you purchase the model from an entity like Taconic, you will get the rights to breed and use the model for your own research purposes. Um, if you have a model generated for you by Taconic that you ultimately want to commercialize, Taconic also has rights to commercialize the model for on your behalf to a third party on behalf of the customer, then that customer can breed and use for their own internal purposes. They don't need a separate license. But if a anybody who generates a CRISPR model wants to sell themselves, that's when they need the uh, rights from the UC Berkeley Broad and other entities in order to commercialize the mouse. So timeout, I was getting a little bit of uh, echo <laughs> and feedback. Should we do that one again? Yeah. I think so. I was just okay. going to ask that, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, Gretchen, it was breaking up like crazy. I think you were uh -oh. freezing a little, yeah. Uh, it's not the headset. It could just be that my internet is unstable right now. Okay. Let's, let's do a take Although it's two. it's not saying it's unstable. All right. 
Jill, I'll read the question again, just to kind of uh, get you in the in the in the mood. All right. Uh, so, Gretchen, what types of licensing fees must an end user consider when considering a CRISPR-generated model in their research platform? Do I have to purchase my own license to use a CRISPR-generated model? So if you're purchasing a CRISPR-generated model from Taconic, you do not need to purchase your own licenses to use the model. Uh, when you buy it from Taconic, we are able to give the customer the right to both read the mouse model and to use it for their own purposes. And they can work with a contract research organization for their, their internal research needs. Um, but if the customer is looking to sell the mouse model themselves directly to third parties, then they must get their own licenses. Um, and However, if a customer wants to sell the model and they don't care if they're the entity selling it, Taconic is actually able to sell any custom generated or any CRISPR-Cas9 generated mouse model to third parties on behalf of our customers. And when we sell it to this other third party, um, these new end users also get the rights to use and breed the model for their own purposes. Great. Is there ever a time when I should consider avoiding the complications of the CRISPR IP landscape altogether and generate the model, generate the model that I'm interested in using other methods? Definitely, yes. If the intention is to use the model for commercial purposes, meaning to specifically use the model as a commercial product through sales of the model to third parties, or to produce a product that will be sold to third parties, then it definitely may be better to consider avoiding CRISPR-Cas9 entirely. Um, if CRISPR-Cas9 were used to generate the model that you want to sell, then you, then you need a license from UC Berkeley and Broad as a minimum. Uh, you also would need to do an extensive patent freedom to operate searching to confirm that you are able, that you have rights from all necessary third parties to get, uh, to use, to commercialize your model. Um, and you would also be considering Sorry, I went back up. Um, when you obtain the licenses directly from UC Berkeley and Broad, you also have to keep in mind that the CRISPR patents, CRISPR-Cas9 patents are fairly new. And they, you know, patents that are granted anywhere in the world have a 20 year lifespan from the date of first filing. So as of now, the CRISPR-Cas9 patents will not be expiring until 2035, which means you're looking at another 15 years of selling royalties. CRISPR. Uh, so it, you're going to need to be paying attention for the next 15 years to find out. You just, just as you got to 15 years, it just froze. It was such a good uh, point as well. Um, so maybe I can ask, maybe I can put that in the form of a question. So um, uh, I don't know who's, who's that whistle? Is that, a, is that better? No, I'm hearing a little high pitch in the background, but um, <clears throat> let's see, how can I, um, okay. Uh, Gretchen, how, how long will these IP issues um, exist for? When does the clock start, so to speak? So patents worldwide are valid for 20 years from the date of original first filing, which means with respect to the CRISPR-Cas9 patents, those patents all began to be filed in about 20, 14 to 20 and later. Um, meaning as of now, you're looking at paying royalties until 2035 
to a minimum of UC Berkeley and Broad, uh, and then to whichever other entities you've uh, used the technology from. A couple of questions before we close. Um, uh, Mark, uh, Gretchen was just pointing out, uh, uh, I think a very interesting uh, notion or, or advice that investigators really need to think about the gene editing method they want to use. So do, do you actually, can you give some examples where perhaps it's, you need to think about whether using CRISPR-Cas9 or more traditional gene knockout methods um, because of the, the downstream implications that that's going to have? Right, exactly. If you anticipate having any kind of licensing inhibitions in the future, you really want to look and see if there are parallel approaches that could be equally used to develop the allele. A lot of times that's a stem cell based approach and you can do exactly the same thing in, actually in a more quality controlled way because you can do different things like radioactive southern blots. Um, the only real downside is the time it takes. So with other more traditional approaches, it could take three to six months longer because you have to manipulate the embryonic stem cells. But it could take you a lot longer than that to actually go through the legal process and the licensing process to get that CRISPR license. So you always want to look at multiple methods and see in this balance of what's the best technology and what's going to be, you know, what can you actually use legally? <laughs> it's not going to be a problem for you down the line. Gretchen, there are um, you know, two or three maybe more different scenarios that could play out as this uh, infamous CRISPR-Cas9 litigation maybe comes to some sort of end game. Um, would, would you care? And I'm not asking you to handicap the race or, or say who you think is going to, how it's going to pan out, but what are some of the, is it possible that uh, UC Berkeley could be handed a, an overwhelming win or vice versa, the Broad, or maybe the two parties will finally come to some sort of settlement. But I think the bigger question I mean, I'm curious in is, will, depending on what happens, are there some important ramifications for your customers um, once there is some sort of resolution? So with respect to UC Berkeley and Broad as the, the foundation members, I honestly think that they're both going to end up with patents, regardless how this latest interference comes out. There will be some techno some subject matter that remains um, valid and enforceable for both of them. To me, that means long-term, anyone wanting to use CRISPR-Cas9 technology will need a license from both the Broad and from UC Berkeley. Um, sorry, rest of the question, could you repeat? Um, it was, uh, it was simply do do you th would there be any I think you've answered the question it was would the would there be any practical impact on your customers depending on how the decision might go but I think that answer was nice and concise and clean okay. um, and the last thing I wanted to ask was um, uh, let's just see um, settlement oh. Um, May, maybe a question for both of you. Uh, let, me, let me phrase it like this. So, of course, uh, we're taping this just uh, a few weeks after the award of the Nobel Prize uh, for chemistry for CRISPR gene editing. Is there any possibility that that could have any bearing on how the, uh, how the uh, patent case is finally resolved, do you think? Hmm. Mark? That's a really good question, Mark, okay. yeah. I don't think I have any insight on that other than 
more people are going to want to use CRISPR-Cas9. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> and, and the bread will make more money, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that will undermine the contributions of uh, Dr. Feng Zhang from, from the Broad. I, it, it's fabulous that uh, the Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier were awarded the Nobel Prize, but I don't think it takes away from other people's contributions to the, the field as well. Excellent. Okay. Well, I think we'll leave it there, but you've given us a lot to think about. So I hope this discussion has been uh, helpful for uh, for our audience as they weigh um, their legal considerations or co think a little bit more closely about the legal considerations when choosing a genetic modification technology uh, to generate animal models uh, for their research. Um, so thank you both so much. Gretchen Rice, who's VP and General Counsel at Taconic and Mark Johnson, um, uh, Dr. Mark Johnson, who is also at Taconic. Uh, thanks so much for your expertise and insights. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure talking to you as well. It's been a pleasure as well, thank you. All right, great. Uh, that's uh, a wrap for part two of our three-part uh, Taconic uh, podcast series. We'll have our final and closing installment uh, for you very soon, but I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, so on behalf of Taconic and everyone at the CRISPR Journal, I'm Kevin Davis. Thanks for listening. And uh, we uh, look forward to, uh, to being with you again very soon. But for now, uh, thanks for thanks for listening and goodbye.